This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our series on the Book of Mark. Now, at the Constructionist, we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we will examine the life of Christ through a clear and honest lens in the Book of Mark. So by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we're not going to be fabricating anything, any information or ideas. Our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination. So if we do guess on something, we're going to let you know it's a guess. And we're gonna give you where we get the information from when we show data and also just researched information. So this is our thinking space. We're presenting ideas and thoughts. And in tonight's tonight's episode, we are making our best attempt to explain very practical thoughts to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and wanna support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform you're listening to and visit our give page so you can support us also through our patreon page at the constructionists and your support will enable us to continue producing high quality content like this but even more importantly we want to hear from you and engage with you and we believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you we can continue to learn and grow together We value your feedback, your questions, and your ideas, and we're excited to build a community around a shared exploration of perspectives, coming up with a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. All right, welcome Sheree and Jake. Thanks for joining again. As we continue, we're in Mark 14, and our goal is to go for an hour, Um, or less. So we're trying to reduce these podcasts to a little bit more palatable time frame. So maybe 45 minutes today as we tonight as we go over Mark 14. We are about ready to move into what they call the passion series or the passion pericope of Mark. And so we're moving that direction, which means that we are soon to close down the book of Mark and move into a new series on cults that we are looking at authoritarian type communities uh, moving forward after this book. So let's get into 14. Go ahead and put the scripture up. And Sharia, would you read a little bit for us starting in 1443? All right. Suddenly, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came with a mob carrying swords and clubs. They had been sent by the chief priests, legal experts, and elders. His betrayer had given them a sign. Arrest the man I kiss and take him away under guard. As soon as he got there, Judas said to Jesus, Rabbi, then kissed him. They came and grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of the bystanders drew a sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Jesus responded, 
Have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like an outlaw? Day after day I was with you, teaching in the temple, but you didn't arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And all his disciples left him and ran away. One young man, a disciple, was wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They grabbed him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. So that's always thought to be Mark right there. There are people have thought that to be Mark. Um, So what do you guys think of the little naked person there that's running off? Why, Why else include it? Yeah. Unless you're writing yourself in the story. Right. <laughs> but what a, a weird, weird way to write yourself in the story. Weird way to write yourself. Is there a point <laughs> to that? Is there any anything that we need to unpack there? Because it just seems like that's a pattern in ancient literature that people, the author, writes themselves into it um, or writes the main character or the, the person mm-hmm. that they are following. So let's say this is a disciple of Mark or a... F- descendant of this disciples of mark um to kind of include hey this is an eyewitness or this is a person that actually saw this happen um there traditionally would is very odd that he would only have a cloak on and nothing else mm-hmm. um and so i think this is a really good stumbling verse of like, what is what's really trying to be said in this point? Um, yeah. <laughs> why, it's odd. why? Yeah, it, it's, it's really odd. And I don't think anyone really knows what is, what's happening. I mean, people have alluded like, uh, this is a proof text that there was homosexuality in scripture Right. Because um, what's he doing out there with just a cloak? What else mm-hmm. are you doing? And you're naked underneath. Why are you naked underneath? Right. Um, or unless they're coming for baptism because they used to baptize people that way. Of course, yeah. And so mm-hmm. was was he getting ready for, for baptism? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I've heard lots that of things of- about it. I'm not sure. Well, it would be it would be shameful in Jewish culture for mm-hmm. a person to be naked. And so that's it seems strange and maybe just alludes to a sense of vulnerability of the situation or maybe just as an inclusion of the author, who knows, or baptism, right? I I, I have a hard time saying it was inclusion of author. If you take the stance that John Mark wrote it, mm-hmm. which is a very right. traditional stance, um, this person would be considered a disciple and not an apostle. I guess he would be an apostle, but not like more of a disciple figure. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it's said anywhere where, where John Mark actually was with Jesus. I don't know if we can take it that far. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a a tradition of trying to put more emphasis on John Mark, right? Uh, right, kind of right. A, kind of like trying to prove in a traditional stance or something. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because Paul's journeys would have been, what, 15, 20 years after? Right. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, um, up to 30, yeah. Yeah. And even Neville Paul, John Mark is seen as a young person, right? Right. So f- for him to be a young person then and then subtract 15, 20 more years. Mm-hmm. That also makes it tough to make this John Mark. Yes. Right. I have heard that this is a just an inclusion that shouldn't be there as well. That it was added or it was just included. Um maybe as a as a you know, somebody somebody just had this thought to put that in or whatever thought they were having to include that, that that really wasn't because, because there's there. Okay. Was it a baptism? Was it a raising of the dead? Was it, you know, like what, what was going on that this person would have been, you know, in this state and probably. Keep going. I was just going to say it. It's, it could be any of those, but it just doesn't make sense to yeah. be there. Mm-hmm. And, and so was it just added? And could we be comfortable? Could we be comfortable with just saying that was added? That's just really not supposed to be there. Because it's, it's, it's like, no, there's no theological, like, importance, importance behind it. Um, besides trying to prove some thought that Mark actually wrote this. Correct. Right. And... If and I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. If if Mar John Mark had been there, right, he would be listed as an apostle, right. Where never in history is is he listed as an apostle. Hmm. And so it's it's an odd inclusion. I'm not sure what we do with. Yeah. Well, well the... I think it's a distraction as well. It is a distraction. And maybe just to show the chaos. And if it was to be like acted out as a play, I think yeah. it could it mm-hmm. could definitely show the chaos of the moment. Right. Um something interesting about this passage is that I think I I caught this time around is usually Peter's aggression is towards a soldier or right. like a very mm-hmm. where in this in this translation Peter is aggressive towards a slave that really had no power. And in this text isn't even named as Peter, just one of the bystanders. Um, Show that again. That's really interesting. 47. Mm-hmm. One of the bystanders drew a sword and traditionally that's thought of as Peter, right? I think maybe in other gospels it is. Yeah. So one of the bystanders drew a sword and struck the high priest's <clears throat> slave and cut off his ear. Jesus, have we have you come with sword? So that's that brings a new emphasis that he's actually being oppressive and violent to um, someone with no power. So that does show a power struggle there. So why arrest him now? I mean, that's the big question. They could have arrested him all along the way. Um, they, it's not like they didn't know where he was and what he was doing. At any moment, they could have found him, probably, like with a quick search. They might have had to search him out. Why arrest him now? What's the, what's the turning point here that you see? <clears throat> 
He's alone. Mm. Passover. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. it's it's more about that everyone's celebrating, everyone's in their homes partying. Jesus mm-hmm. goes out by himself, and that's the most optimal time to to do it. In the night, no one knows what's happening. Right. Everyone's fleeing. No everywhere. resistance from the crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But also narratively to have this happen against the Passover narrative. Right. Yeah, it's crowd. Uh, I'll call it crowd theology, right? Where all of a sudden we see a crowd, big crowd, um, gather. And when you have crowds, you can exercise a lot of power. Um, we see that philosophy with dictators and, and tyrants of the world that they gather crowds and then they can start overthrowing certain systems. And so it's very um, vulnerable, a vulnerable time. Crowds, when you have a crowd, it's vulnerable. Uh, there could be an exercise of a lot of power. So in our, uh, in our era, you see crowd philosophy in um, the political realm. So when a politician stands up with, you know, thousands and thousands of people, they can have lots of influence. Uh, so stifling the influence, making sure that that influence is removed, I think is the reason why it's uh, he's arrested right now mm-hmm. because of crowd <clears throat> philosophy. Um, there would be a lot of fear around that, I think, um, during this well, it's the most important festival of the year and you're going to have probably the most people around that that uh, you're going to have the most military presence and the most jewish presence at the same time so mm-hmm. that that dynamic um in the area would have created a lot of anxiety i think with religious leaders uh, or just in po- people in power so we see then we move it's like why was jesus even executed in the first place probably because of that continued anxiety of crowd Mm -hmm. philosophy where it's like okay this person can have a lot of influence not only on the jewish culture but then the roman culture as well um could create a huge disruption violence in the streets and to keep control of that we see this narrative just play out the way that it does in an execution happen. <clears throat> one, uh, one commentator on, on the, the boy fleeing. Yeah. Um, is it's a metaphor of the innocence of Jesus's message leaving. Oh, interesting. Hmm. I'm not sure how that plays out, but I just like to sign else up because this passage sits odd. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> So I, I still have a thought on that. Okay. Um, the the baptism idea is really interesting to me. Um, okay. Because if this were written for the early church, then mm-hmm. that context makes a lot of sense, right? Right. Uh-huh. Um, and in the situation, with, the verse before says, all of his disciples left him and ran away. Yeah. Um, and so if you're the early church, you're about to be baptized and you you read yourself into the story, it it brings up the question, are you one of those who is going to run away? Yeah, I mean, that's it. And then just so people follow with us, uh, why this makes sense is because new converts would be baptized in the Easter season. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so 
Easter usually follows Passover in tradition. Like it's at the same time period. And mm-hmm. so Seder, Seder dinners are celebrated at the exact same time as Easter. Uh, and so, yeah, it's at the same time period, the same things are happening. This person comes for baptism, but it's innocence is ripped from them and it runs away. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, there's now again, we're guessing on this, this trying to find a yeah, solid guess though. I would say that whenever you see these kinds of things in scripture, they're a signaling to something. And mm-hmm. what is that? I mean, who knows? I, to say that it is Mark, it's kind of the weakest, I guess the weakest explanation. Um, and that just, again, like Jake said, goes back to trying to prove some conservative or traditional time frame dating of the book of Mark or original authorship. Uh, whether we see that in other ancient literature or not, you know, it's just kind of as a weak argument. So it's a signaling for some greater reality. And you could say, yeah, baptism, running away, fleeing from the scene, uh, vulnerability. It, it would have, to a Jewish reader, it would have kind of like raised the eyebrows of like, okay, this is weird. Yeah. Um, because it would have been disgraceful. It's a disgrace passage. Right. And so it's like, okay, the vulnerability, it's just the emotion of the season, um, the vulnerability of the season. I could see, I could see all of that. Although you can't prove that stuff. You can't prove that. That's why I kind of, I kind of lean towards, okay, so since it's there, let's just make up some, you know, like that, that preaches well. You know, that that preaches good in front of people where, you know, when you're facing impending death and persecution, it's very vulnerable, like a naked boy running out of the garden, you know, like a, like like it's it's that vulnerability. Um, but I, I kind of lend towards it was just kind of added later. Why not? That's fine. Well. And when something makes no sense in scripture that doesn't have a clear pattern in the rest of scripture, I have to sit there and go, well, does that, does that threaten the, the, the word of God? No. Does that threaten, you know, what I believe about, you know, the authority of the Bible? No. What I think it threatens is that the Bible probably wasn't, you know, this perfect inerrant document, which I'm totally comfortable in saying. So, um, I'm looking something up here. Yeah. So in this passage, Jesus does not replace the ear of the servant. Mm-hmm. Okay. And usually it's always seen it. It gets cut off and then mm-hmm. the ear is replaced. Right. Is there, and I'm wondering, Is it only in John where the ear is replaced? Well, we certainly can look that up. I am right now. Okay, good. 
what I could say is that this is not a a nice scene. So complete chaos. So, yeah. So just the mere fact ear is cut off, naked guy, uh, arrest. You know, it does show a, a, a complete disruption to the modus operandi leading up to this. I mean, he before, heals the ear in Luke. Only in oh. Luke. Okay. Well, Luke is pretty detailed. So that to be made up. I mean, what was the purpose of, you know, Mark leaves out the resurrection. So it's like, well, <laughs> you know, what, what else does he leave out? I, I don't know. But um, I would say that I would say that there's there's a dynamic that we can see between chaos and um, let's say order. Uh, no, I would say chaos and innocence. You know, if you could look at the the, the chaos and the and the vulner uh, chaos and vulnerability and innocence, mm. kind of an an interplay here, um, leading up to a crucible event in all of you know at least Christian history, but history in general. So, crucible, crucible, yeah, and yeah, probably a, <laughs> no no play on words there. <clears throat> okay, let's look at the next section. So now we move into the hearing. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders, and legal experts gathered. So now we're now we're at the uh, Jewish leader section. Uh, Peter followed him from a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many brought false testimony against him, but they contradicted each other. Some stood uh, to offer false witnesses against him, saying, we heard him saying, I will destroy this temple constructed by humans, and within three days I will build another, one not made by humans, but their testimonies didn't agree even on this point. Then the high priest stood up in the middle of the gathering and examined Jesus. Aren't you going to respond to the testimony these people have brought against you? But Jesus was silent, didn't answer again. The high priest asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am, and you will you will see the human one sitting on the right side of the Almighty and coming on the heavenly clouds. I, I want to stop there because I think that this has been a tradition um, for probably millennia with Jewish culture. Um, in, in Israel, when you go to Israel's courts now, uh, the testimony of people is very powerful. And and almost witness testimony in Jewish courts or Israel's courts, um, especially around things like the Holocaust and um, Nazi war crimes and things like this uh, that Jewish people have had to endure. The testimony of people becomes becomes almost like like equal to evidence of like even photographs that are presented. 
So if you don't have photographs, the testimony of people become like the photograph of time. So the testimony of people becomes a really important factor in Jewish history that we've seen play out in modern time, but we also see that played out in ancient time where the where the testimony becomes very powerful. I'm trying to think of different uh, areas of our life where testimony becomes uh, powerful because we put a lot of pr people in prison um, not on the testimony of people but on skewed data. So in, in our culture today, we look at evidence over testimony. So if yeah. evidence alludes or points to with without reasonable doubt then somebody goes to prison in other cultures testimony becomes the reasonable doubt where people are saying this person does not have the character to perform this kind of act or crime that becomes the reasonable doubt in other cultures but in our culture there's like a piecemealing of well we found a we found a piece of evidence here in this spot and you were driving by you know and you're seen on this camera in your vehicle so we have a picture of your vehicle so we can tie you to the scene just because you were driving through let's say let's say the the town nearby so we we begin to piece now now i, I think evidence is important and those things can tie you to crime but in our culture, it seems like those types of things become the rule of law versus testimony of character, um, while other cultures' testimony of character becomes more, it's stronger than even like you were around the time of the, the scene of the crime. What do you guys think of that? I think... Um... I think that's intertwined with being a very individualist society also. Um, I think testimony about another's character is more powerful when you're actually in community to where you're depending on each other. Right. Um, but when you're not living that closely together, I don't think you see the fullness of people's character quite as well. Um, it's easier to hide. It's easier to not know. It's easier to have doubt about people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it, it goes hand in hand, like unless we were to move to a more collectivist society, mm -hmm. I don't personal testimony could carry the same weight. But I, this wasn't an individualistic society, do you think? Was or was not? What? was not this was not an individual that's what she's society. saying yeah is that right. what you're saying okay exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. I, we we can depend on evidence because we don't trust each other <laughs> yeah yeah I, right i think two things i feel like out of this the first is that we may declare people in the court innocent but they can still be in the court of public opinion yeah. deemed mm -hmm. guilty. Guilty, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think that 
public opinion does hold greater weight than evidence still no matter what we may say that it doesn't right but if if we believe that uh police wouldn't have social media channels right the courts wouldn't wouldn't have any testimony besides complete data and um Mm -hmm. malcolm gladwell in his book talking to strangers uh shows the data of of repeat offenders while out on bail and how usually when a judge gives bail they look at past they look at performance they look at what's happening um and almost the 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 statistic is staggering of how many people commit crime while out on bail Yet, if we were to use a computer program, and Malcolm Gladwell actually showed the program that how it would work, it has like almost a hundred percent accuracy of who is going to commit a crime while out on bail. Hmm. Just like a character analysis of. Yeah, of like what's happening, what's going on. Got it. Character, past mm-hmm. performance, their psych tests, probably their MMPIs put on there. Everything. Right. Everything. Yeah. And so. We rely heavily on feeling and the court of public mm-hmm. opinion. I think I think you're right, Kevin, that we say that we don't. Um a hundred percent that that in in our utopia it would be based solely on data. Well, I think that our court of public opinion is different though than testimony yeah so so court of public opinion is based a lot on the feeling that justice is required when when something happens justice is required therefore someone has to be guilty and therefore i'm going to like just have an opinion about who's guilty so and you know through my quote research that i do where i google something which that's not i just want to say that's not research that's looking up stuff on you know the internet research has controls and data behind it which nobody is using controls and data behind their research when they google but because i did my research and i looked at my you know whatever website that i'm on that that is now truth so so the reason why I bring this all up, though, is because the dialogue that's going on in this Mark passage, they're showing conflicting testimony. They're showing like testimony that doesn't match. And it's like, well, why would you even say that? What's the point of saying, well, this is contradictory to this and this person said this, but this doesn't match to that unless testimony is important and i think that that the whole point of well not the point but but a point that could be made out of this passage is just because it's stated and people are in contradiction with one another that obviously testimony is is powerful and needs to carry some weight so i think about how that relates to today and how we need to really listen to testimony of people because it is their truth. It is their 
reality. Now their reality might be skewed, um, but listening to it and looking for contradictions in testimony obviously could be an important exercise as seen here. What is interesting in this passage as well is that they took the contradiction to heart. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. They had to find on different things besides that. They actually took the contradiction to heart. Right. Now, another thing, Sherry, maybe you can enlighten me here on this, is Peter. What mm -hmm. are you, stupid? I mean, you follow Jesus into this. He's I not mean, supposed to be there, is he? Well, I just sit there and go, okay, what's the point of that? Like, okay, so you fought, did you, did you just like, do you have subconsciously in your brain now, I have to deny Jesus. So I have to show up wherever Jesus is because I'm going to deny Jesus. Like, are you, are you just crazy for following him in here? What does this show about Peter? I'm trying to figure that out right now. I mean, I think it makes sense that he just wants to know what's going to happen. Right. This is still in the middle of the night and you know, if you go home and go to bed, you have no idea what's going to happen by the time you wake up. So curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought and it back. <laughs> maybe. Let's. I, I am curious if Peter is even allowed to be in the, the high priest's courtyard. Yeah. That seems yeah. pretty risky. Something that I just looked up, which I think is funny and could connect because he's by the fire and it just brought it up to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. 50% of serial arsons return to the fire. Okay. Huh. <laughs> Gotta so see what you, happens. If you want to find a serial arsonist, just just wait by the fire, basically. You have a one in two chance of find, finding them. So are you saying that Peter might be addicted to violence? Or what are you saying? I mean, that's like, that's like, it could mm -hmm. be at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we believe that he's the one who cut off the ear, now we need to see, you know, what's next, right? So we're going to yeah. jump in. It's interesting mm -hmm. that nothing happened to him when he did cut the ear off, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a there's a social dynamic there that, that the person was a slave. So did that person's mm -hmm. life... Not necessarily going to... Yeah. yeah Defended. Was that even a violation of the social ethic of the day? Yeah. Something as well. Did we get into I am the human one, the son of man? Um, not yet, no. No. We're about we're about ready to. Okay. Because because Peter forget, follows Jesus. I forget what you read. Yeah. So Peter read follows Jesus, toasts his marshmallows oh. and makes his s'mores, and then now we're gonna see Jesus uh being questioned are you this are you what you claim to be and then he states something that jake why don't you unpack that for us i am did, the did we did we read that yeah we i don't think we it. did i think we stopped part way um, do you we? remember where you stopped um, reading no I, I i read that uh 62 jesus said i am and you will see the human one sitting on the right hand of the side of the almighty and coming on the heavenly clouds that Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we need any more witnesses? You heard this insult against God. What do you think? And they all condemned him and said he deserves to die. Some began to spit on him. Some cover, co covered their faces and hit him. 
<laughs> saying, prophesy our prophecy. Then the guards took him and beat him. So then read that next part. Well, I'll read that next part well, there. Just well, let's, that let's stop. We should stop there for a second. Okay. All right. Jesus's claims there are not blasphemous. How so? He's not claiming to be God whatsoever. Right. And so all, all Jesus is claiming to be mm -hmm. is a, a Messiah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it is at this point in history that the Messiah turned into divine. Does that make sense? Maybe. Say, that one more, say, um, that, say that one more time. So nowhere in history has the Messiah been equated to divine, to God. Right. It's at this moment that the Messiah is seen as a divine figure. I okay. am. And is that. Uh, okay. I am. No. It, so I am. I am a Messiah. And you're mm -hmm. going to see the human one. Which those those terms were never meant for a divine figure, Messiah, human right. one, son of man, like David was a son of man. Uh, mm -hmm. Ezekiel is it in Ezekiel? Ezekiel, yeah. son of man, come up here, son of man. Right, right. And mm -hmm. so you have these. It's more prophetic than than mm -hmm. divine. But what 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 the chief priest is saying at this point is that the Messiah is this divine figure. And so I feel like the lesson for the early church at this point is that the Messiah was recognized as divine, even by the Jewish leaders. What is the divine part of that, though? Because like you were just in saying, order, in order to all of the words in there, in order to blast, okay. uh, you had to speak against God or think that you are God. Right. And so that's just saying I'm the Messiah and I'm the human one is not a blasphemy. Unless you believe that the human right. was God or supposed to be God. So, so can I, can I go? Why back? would the priests make that assumption? It's a great question. Unless they wanted to kill him. Unless they wanted to kill him. But now throughout all history, we have the Messiah directly right. tied to divine because in order to kill somebody, you have to you have right. to live that ethic out for the rest of your life, right? Mm. Go ahead, Kevin. Go back to the scripture. I want to I want to develop something and, and see what you two think. Oh, sorry. Wrong uh, screen. Go up to. Um. Go up, up, warming by the fire. Where's that warming by the fire? Are we going to talk about him being an arsonist? No. Okay, bummer. So one... Oh, uh, sorry. Go down, go down, go down before this. Okay, so then Jesus... Uh, they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, blah, blah, blah. Peter followed him from a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the guards warming by the fire. So right there, the, the, you got the high priests and the chief priests, elders, legal experts. Peter's included in this scene one. So if you think about this as scene one, right? And the focal point is the fire and the testimony. So then go down. Go down to the next section. 
so now in scene two, then the high priest stood up in the middle of the gathering, examined Jesus. So now Peter is not included in this section. So Peter's not included here, included in scene one, not included in scene two. And now re so now we have like Peter's not so so there has to be something here. Go to the third, go to the third scene now. Uh, and now Peter's included again in the denial. So the first scene, the third scene picks up where the first scene lets off. Mm -hmm. Correct. So you're you're trying to unpack that second scene. Why does the focus change there? From Jesus to Peter? Is that what you're saying? No, away from Peter to now the high priest. Well, I mean, why why wouldn't it make sense for it to go into the the courtroom scene? Right. And what I see in 66, so Peter is below in the courtyard. He's right. not in the courtroom. Right. So if we're going to follow what happens to Jesus, we have to cut away from Peter. Well, what's Peter the metaphor of in the scripture then? I mean, if, if you follow... If you follow the idea, it's that Jesus is the, the early church, right? Or Peter is the early church. Peter's the early church, yeah. So there's just something there that I'm not that I'm seeing that um might require a little more attention. Correct. Because it's very significant that we have Peter looking on, we then turn away from Peter. And now the focus, so the focus is on the fire and Peter. And now the focus is on, okay, okay. It's the fire. It's the fire. What's the fire? Every time you see fire in scripture, hold on. Hold on. It's a metaphor. Of the presence of God. Of God. I've never seen that before. It is odd that in Scripture, it would be very odd to include fire and not have that mean something. Okay. I mean, I think, I think you could. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm totally sold because okay. I, I, I follow Hebrew <laughs> metaphor, right? Hebrew metaphors are are incredibly important, and even though this is for, for a different audience, that 
the Hebrew metaphors carry in all of the gospels and all the scriptures. So Peter and fire, that symbol right there means the presence of God. It could mean judgment. It could mean, you know, God's authority. It could mean like God's guidance, God's direction. The presence of God is there. So, so we see then, um, a turning away from that scene into the high courts where where maybe the presence of God is not there. And then back to Peter again. I, I just think that that's an important thing to uh, to include because you can't say that's a theophany like of God, but it's a metaphor. Like, like I, I guess the, in Exodus, you would say the pillars of fire would be the theophany of God. Um, that would be more of a manifestation of the presence of God. But in the New Testament, we see these um, these metaphors or these symbols used, like water, um, fire, wind, things like that, mean more of presence and salvation than anything else. So that fire right there, actually, um, as I think about it in real time, that fire actually means something more than a gloss over in in my in my history in my re in my research in my in my thoughts on hebrew scripture or rather uh, on the bible but he hebrew culture um i don't know just some concluding thoughts on that and then we'll we'll close down i th i mean I'm not sold. Okay. But but I, I hear you. <laughs> and yeah. it's valid. I think mm -hmm. you could definitely pull that metaphor out. I'm I'm on I'm on the fence. Okay. Any other thoughts? On that or before we wrap up? On that as we wrap up. I I think it's interesting at the fire scene that Peter is with the people that he attacked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a bit awkward. Yeah, it's an awkward moment. Maybe the bloody-eared guy is still there. Probably. <laughs> um, I mean, where else is fire in the New Testament at that point? I don't know right now. I just look at that. Number one, this is this is a retelling of the Exodus. So so if it if that holds true that this is a retelling that there's elements of the Exodus in here, releasing the captives, water becomes an important pillars of fire in the in the wilderness then fire becomes important so i so i i see that that if this is a recreation story fire becomes very um important and just to gloss over that and say that peter was actually there toasting marshmallows and it's no big deal um probably is kind of a miss 
that we're missing something in scripture because we're about ready to go into Peter denying Jesus three times. So you look at that idea of Peter denying Jesus in a complete three right before that, that we're with the presence of God. Um, I just see presence, judgment, trial, destruction, chaos, again, maybe plague-esque type of chaos moving towards a pinnacle point of of uh crucifixion and eventually resurrection recreation that we come out on earth again as a new garden yeah i mean just a quick search <laughs> yeah the, the only times you see it uh in the new testament is being purified with fire mm. and uh, the tongues of fire of the Holy Spirit coming down. So then fire then again is the metaphor of the presence of God. I don't know, just some cool thoughts. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And we hope that you glean some good thoughts uh, uh, through the book of Mark so far in this short passage that we covered. And we all got to go. So if you want to support us, go to the um, website, resonatelife.org, and you can go to the Give page or go to the Patreon page, The Constructionist. You can support us financially there as well. Make sure that you give us your feedback and your thoughts, and we'll answer your questions um, through the week as well. And so thanks, Shreya. Thanks, Jake, for joining us. And with that, good night, everybody.